um, 1 John chapter number 2. We're going to read verses 3 down to verse number 11. The first chapter, if, you're, if you'll remember, um, the latter part, beginning in verse 5 down to chapter number 2 and verse number 2, deals with the fact that true, authentic faith is, is um, revealed, is manifested, is confirmed, number one, by how we respond to the light. Uh, when God shines his light on us, um, exposing us for who we are, we're, we're both sinners and we're sinful, uh, one being positional, one being who we are. At the core, at the root of who we are, we're sinners. The other one being what we do every day, uh, we sin every day, right? Uh, each and every one of us is, uh, before we're saved, we're sinners by nature and we're sinful by action. And when the light of the Lord, the gospel, shines on us, exposes us for who we are, um, we know that we are one of God's children by how we respond to that. In other words, as, as John mentions at the end of chapter number one, he says there are going to be some who say that they have no sin. There are going to be some who say that they're not sinners. And he calls them liars and calls them blasphemers. But then there are some who are willing to confess their sin. And the scriptures teach us in John chapter number three, um, in the gospel of John, same author, and also in 1 John, that when the light of Christ shines on a true believer, a true convert, that individual doesn't respond with um, identifying how great they are, but responds with identifying how great Christ is. In other words, I'm able to stand in the presence of the holy, just, righteous, perfect God, not because I am worthy of standing in his presence, but because Christ Jesus is worthy of being in his presence, and Christ Jesus lives inside of me. And he teaches us the fact that we have no reason to fear. If you're a true Christian this morning, and God shines his light on you and exposes the fact that maybe you have a certain sin of pride in your heart, or rebellion, or maybe you have a problem with lust, or maybe you have a problem with greed, or you have some problem in your life, when God shines his light on that problem in your life, you're able to stay there and let him work out the details of that problem because you're not trusting in the fact that you're worthy to be in the light, but you're trusting in the fact that Jesus Christ in you is worthy of being in the light. So you stay there, you allow the gospel, you allow the work of God to change you and transform you because you stay in the light. James 1 talks about when the, when the, when the light, when the truth shines on us, when the word of God is opened up to us and we see who we are, those who are not converted will run but those who are true believers will stay in the light and they'll watch their lives change. They'll see themselves transformed by the power of Christ. And we've got to remember this. When we get saved, positionally, we are perfect. Christ comes to live within us. We are made righteous. From God's point of view, everything about us is right. Practically, there's a lot of work to be done. We call that sanctification, right? Right? the Lord begins to work what he has planted in us, he begins to work it out of us. So what's on the inside of us, which is perfect righteousness, begins to come on the outside of us, which is perfect righteousness, all right? Someone once said, the only evidence that we have that we have been justified and one day will be glorified is that we are being sanctified. 
okay? Maybe big words for you. Justification is when the Lord makes us his. Glorification is when the Lord finalizes his work. Both of them are events, and both of them are invisible. You can't see them. When somebody is justified, you don't see it. It's a a judge's making a person righteous in his standing. It's a legal term. Glorification is something that's going to happen in eternity. The only thing that we see in our lives that confirms that we have experienced justification and we will experience glorification is that we're going through sanctification, okay? Sanctification is no, is no fun, is it? It's painful, okay? It hurts. It's like your kids when they're going through that process when you're training and teaching them, right? Doesn't always feel good, does it? And all the kids that are in here, which they're not very many, but they're all shaking their heads really hard right now. Sometimes it hurts, doesn't it? Going through that process of training and nurturing and equipping and and building character into those kids, it's painful. It's the same principle with sanctification. When we go through that process, it sometimes can be painful, but it's worth it, amen? When your kids are 25 years old and they're doing what is right and they have character in their hearts, you say, you know what, all that work and all that pain paid off, right? Spiritually, it's the same thing. All that pain pays off. The second test, if you will, that John gives us is the test of not just how do we respond to the light, but how do we respond to the law, okay? How do we respond to rules and regulations, all right? We all love this one, right? Okay? We don't have to obey God's law to be saved, right? Do we have to obey God's law to be saved? Okay, well, let's answer the question biblically. Let's look at it from what God's word says. Let's read the text. The Bible says, verse number three, and by this we know that we know him, that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him, but does not keep keep his commandments is a liar, Okay, strong term here, very similar to the term that he used at the beginning when he says those who say that they have fellowship with God but walk in darkness, he says that they are liars as well. Okay, so he uses some strong terminology here to make a point. And remember the point is, one of the points is this, just because you say something is true about you but you don't live it out doesn't make it true about you. Many say things about themselves to be true because we see ourselves perhaps better than we ought. But what is true about us is what we do. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment, for I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Again, note Even though he says he's in the light, but yet he doesn't live right, he is in darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Okay, a few notes here very quickly. John uses different phrases all throughout the book of 1 John to describe salvation. In chapter number one, he uses the term fellowshipping with God. He's not describing a fellowship that's absent relationship, but he's actually describing relationship. That we have a relationship with God and therefore we have a fellowship with God. In chapter number two, he describes it as knowing God or being in him. So the emphasis of this text is simply those who are saved will keep God's commands. Those who are saved will keep God's commands. Okay, for many, obedience plays no role in the gospel at all, but is actually contrary to the gospel. And the reason for this is many religions have made obedience the source of salvation. They say if salvation is by grace, then obedience to God's law has no place. If you'll take some time, we won't turn there this morning, but Romans chapter number five and Romans chapter number six, Paul addresses this issue with the idea that yes, salvation is by grace and by grace alone, but that grace, I think it was, I don't remember who said this, but the essence was salvation is through faith alone, but it is through a faith that is never alone. In other words, we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, but that faith always comes accompanied with works. It always produces works. It always brings with it change. It doesn't leave us the way we are. It transforms us. The problem is the placement of works. Some place works as the cause of their salvation. This, we would say, is heresy. If anybody puts salvation as the product of something that you or I do, okay, remember this, salvation is the product of what Jesus did, amen? Jesus and Jesus alone, right? He did everything. He didn't do 99% and we bring 1% to the puzzle. He brought 100% of everything necessary for salvation. In Jesus, salvation and redemption of mankind was accomplished. Remember that. In Jesus, the salvation and redemption of mankind was accomplished. We are the reward for Jesus' work of redemption and salvation. We are given to Christ because he has redeemed mankind for himself. We are rewarded to him for the work that he has accomplished. So putting works ahead of salvation or in front of salvation is heresy. It's blasphemy to say that I work my way into God's favor. Titus 3 and verse 5, the Bible says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy he has saved us, right? Is there a clearer passage of scripture or verse of scripture? However, 
Obedience being a necessary, and I, I, I say that word purposefully. Obedience being a necessary work that follows salvation. Matter of fact, the Bible is very clear that every born-again Christian will be identified by their obedience to God. Let me read a few texts to you. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, In flaming fire... Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have a pen and paper, James 2, 14 through 26, read the entire context. Faith without works is, is dead. Faith without works is empty. Faith without works can accomplish nothing. Was Abraham justified by faith alone? Here's the issue in the book of James. James is not about justifying the justifying work that brings salvation, but James is about the justifying work that justifies salvation. It means that James proves that you're saved. Romans is how to get saved. James proves that you are saved. Matthew 7, 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man whose house was built upon the rock, right? Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And we can look at, we can look over and over, we can go throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament And we can find over and over again these seeming commands in which a person is saved. But what the Lord is not implying is that through these things, such as Matthew talks about, if you don't forgive somebody, then your Father in heaven will not forgive you, right? So is the issue that because I forgive people that God's going to forgive me? Or is the issue that because God has forgiven me, I will forgive people? The Bible says that those who do not show mercy will not receive mercy. Do we earn mercy by showing it? Or because we have received it, we show it. You see, it's it's, it's confirming who we are. Christ changes us. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, the Bible says that we are saved by, by grace, through faith, and not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto unto good works. The Lord saves us to these things. These things don't bring us into a relationship with him, but these things identify us as being in a relationship with him. According to John, it can be assumed, remember this, according to John, it can be assumed that all of those who are saved will be obedient to God's word. This is not me. I'm not not talking about according to this John. (laughs) Let me clarify that, right? According to this John, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, it can be expected that all of those who are truly in Christ Jesus will obey his word. 
will do what he has called them to do. Therefore, it is impossible to be saved and not be obedient to God's word. And this is where he draws, this is where we get down to our text, down to, down to the brass tacks of our text. And I just want to look at three things um, in the remainder of our time this morning. If you're taking notes, you can follow right along with me and hopefully unpack this so that we can see how is it that the, the, the claim that John makes, and it's a strong claim because he literally says this, if you call yourself a, a Christian and yet you don't obey the word of God, what does he call them? I'm going to let you say it. What does he call them? Okay, good. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be that mean. I'm going to let you guys be mean, right? He's serious. He's serious about this. This is no small thing. You know, we live in a generation of people who, who come to church on Sunday, who said a prayer when they were five years old, or whatever might be the case. They maybe went through catechisms, or they went through some, some religious uh, function, and they believe that they're saved because they did those things, but the power of Christ and the presence of Christ is not with them, and they absolutely have no fear of God at all. That's a very dangerous place to be. The reality of it is this. If the presence of Christ and the power of Christ isn't in you, motivating you and moving you each day of your life, you should be one of the most afraid people that walks upon the face of the earth. I grew up in a home, I grew up in a, in a, in a culture, in a, in a world where salvation was all about a prayer that you said. So we grew up, we said that prayer when we were five years old and then we kind of just lived wickedly. We lived however we wanted to live. And you know something that was missing in our lives? We didn't fear God at all. Do you know why? Because we had dealt with God. We dealt with God when we were five years old. It was done. It was finished. We did our deal. You know, we signed the documents. We, we made the transaction. Everything is fine now. But you know something? Everything wasn't fine, was it? And God had to open up my eyes to see, you've got a problem. And your problem is with me. You know, something that was an extraordinary work of grace, that God would be willing to do that to me and not leave me in my state of ignorance and selfish pride and selfish ambition. I'm gonna look at three things. Number one, what is the makeup of God's commands? What is the makeup of God's commands? Basically, God's commands are twofold. Okay, and you're familiar with this, you're aware of this. The Bible says that God commands, God commands us, number one, to love him, right? The Bible says the first and the great commandment is that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? So that's the first commandment. The second commandment is that we love each other, right? That guy and that girl, that person sitting next to you, that person across the room here. Our second command is that you love them. He doesn't say with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's reserved for God, but our second command is that we love each other, all right? Now, here's what I want, you to, I want you to see very quickly. The Bible is full of commands, isn't it? Would you say that there's more commands in the Bible than just those two? Sure, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt have no other gods before me, right? I mean, we could go on and on. As a matter of fact, there's actually hundreds and hundreds of commands in God's word, Right? Now, here's the essence of it. All of the commands of Scripture can be combined into two commands. All of the commands of Scripture can be combined into two commands. 
Do you know the problem in our world today is not murder? It's not lust. The problem in our world today is not greed. The problem in our world today is not pride. The problem in our world today is this. We do not love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we do not love each other as we love ourselves. That's the problem. You get those two things right, and everything else fixes itself, doesn't it? If everybody loves the other person like they love themselves, how many murders would be committed? We just solved the problem. We just solved the world's problem this morning with two commands. How much pride and lust and greed would we be dealing with if we loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Zero. These two commands are the essence, the, the solution to all of the world's problems, and they're the commands that God gives us to follow. I would say this to you. These commands are impossible to keep. These commands are impossible to keep. So if you're taking notes, write that down. Number one, God demands that which is impossible for mankind to keep. I've heard... I've heard religious groups, preachers, teachers say, God would never ask us to do something that we were not capable of doing. And my response to that is, have you not read your Bible? (laughs) Because the Ten Commandments that God gave the children of Israel were, were impossible for them to keep, right? Every command that God has ever given man is impossible for mankind to keep. So why does God give us commands that are impossible for us to keep? See, the issue is not whether or not we keep the commands or don't keep the commands. The issue is that we see ourselves as incapable so that we come to Christ who is capable, right? He is the solution. He is the one who can fulfill or did fulfill and continues to fulfill all of God's commands on our behalf. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that the greatest of all gifts is what? Above faith, above hope, These three things you have, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is is love. It's love for God. It's love for for each other. Let me give you three real quick thoughts on this. Number one, the Bible says in verse number seven that I'm writing to you no new commandment. In other words, what what John is saying is, is this is not a new commandment. This commandment is not a New Testament commandment versus an Old Testament commandment. All of the commandments of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 are the same. Love God, love each other. And here's how it looks. Don't lust. Don't covet. Don't steal. Don't have any other gods. This is how it looks. But these are the commandments. Love God, love each other. They are They are ancient in nature, never changing. Not only that, but he says, but I do write a new commandment to you. And what he means here is it's fresh. 
The commandments of God are always fresh. From generation to generation, the commandments of God never grow stale. They're never, you know, you heard it said before, well, let's just out of date. The commandments of God are never out of date, are they? They're never out of date. Our need to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love each other as we love ourselves is the same as it was when Adam and Eve came out of the garden. It's timeless, it's ancient, and it's practical. It is seen in how we treat others, it's seen in how we worship, it's seen in how we our, our commitments, it's seen in our devotions, it's seen in our priorities. There was a preacher that once said, we all want to say that God is God, right? I mean, that's just kind of natural. We just, we, we're a religious culture. God is God. God is, he said this, his comment was, whatever is first in your life, whatever is best in your life is God. And, 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 I, and I would say this to you, how you know because, again, we're all, we're all self-deceived, right? We all, we all have this tendency to see self better than we should. Agreed? Okay. The way that we see if God is first in our life is by our priorities. It's what's on the first of our list. Every day that we go through life, does God take first place? I think, I think we live in a culture, I think John teaches about it, where, where we're that culture that says we say something is true about ourselves. Well, God is number one. And the first moment that we get an opportunity to choose for God versus choosing for self, who do we choose for? So God is whatever is number one in your life. It's possible that it may not be that God. It might be this God. But we can deal with that, right? Through Christ and in Christ. So what is, God's, what is the makeup of God's commands for us? Twofold, again, love God, love others. Number two, what is the meaning of keeping God's commands? John uses a, a very um, distinct Greek word here. He doesn't use, you'll not find the word obey in this context, but you find the word keep. And the reason why John uses the word keep here, the word means to guard to keep watch over or to faithfully observe. The, the word carries with it the idea of treasuring something. If you ever had something that was super valuable, like a keepsake or a, a, a map, a treasure map, you, you know, something where you, you, you just, it was gonna guide you to, to success, right? I, I think of, I always think of Psalms 1 where the Bible says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he doth meditate day and night, right? Okay, let me give you guys a, 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 a solution to, our, to our, our lack of success in, the, in life. It's not because you don't work hard enough. It's not because you don't work enough hours. The Bible says that if we want to have success in our life, the solution is, is to meditate on God's word day and night. Now, question for us all is, how many of us do that? He says, if you meditate on the word of God day and night, you will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth, bringeth, bringeth forth fruit in its season. Its leaf also shall not wither, and whatever it does, it shall... You ever hear that in a, in a motivational speech? On how to be successful. I've just given you the, 
the key to having success in your life. The key to getting your kids to be successful. It's by ingraining in them the word of God and helping them to meditate on it day in and day out, day and night. It means literally all day. You say, Pastor John, does that mean that I'm supposed to sit in front of my Bible all day? No. Okay, it means you're supposed to meditate on your Bible all day. It means as you go through the day, you're thinking about, what does God think of this? And you become a better husband, you become a better wife, you become a better child, you become a better employee, you become better at everything. Why? Because God is the essence of what you're doing. How many of us treasure, how many of us treasure God's commands? How many of us, literally the the word here, again, faithfully observed, watch over, I wrote down kind of my own interpretation, if you will. I wrote down the idea of pleasure and enjoyment. How many of us take pleasure and get enjoyment out of God's commands? I'm going to give you an illustration of this. I remember growing up, my parents had a lot of rules for me. Any of you, any of you guys say your parents had a lot of rules for you? Oh, goodness, you guys are like totally free in this church. <laughs> Nobody raised their hands at all. We all had parents with rules, right? Now, how many of you liked your parents' rules? Now I understand that no hands on that one. How many of you have the same rules for your own kids? Do you know what happened? You learned the value of those rules when you had your own kids. The Bible says in Galatians that when we're children, we're under the law, right? But when we become full grown, we no longer have to be under the law. It's not because the law is not important. We like the thou shalt not kills, right? We like that, right? It's not that we don't have to be under the law, but we don't have to be under the law anymore because we understand the law. We understand the goodness of the law. We understand the nature of the law. Therefore, we naturally obey it. It's like parenting. When you were a child, you hated all those rules, but now you're a parent and you understand what all those rules mean. When a person gets saved, they come to understand They come to treasure, they come to appreciate God's law because they realize the value in which it was given to them. Give you some um, things to read in your own time. Psalm 19 and also Psalm 119. Great, great passages of scripture about treasuring the law of God. About valuing it, making it important. Now, lastly, what is it that motivates us to keep God's commands? This is the process. This is the process Okay, the Bible says this, in our, back in our text. By this, we know that we know him. By this, we know that we know him. In, in other words, get this. What John is saying is, is, here's a way to know if you know God rightly. Here's a way to know if you know God rightly. Because a lot of people don't know God rightly, do they? How do I know if I know God rightly? If you, here it is, if you keep his commandments. You say, Pastor John, why is it that, why is it that keeping his commandments would show whether or not I know him rightly? Because if you know the heart of God and you know the heart of his commandments, and you know the motivation behind his commandments, and you know what his commandments are going to produce, and you know the goodness of his nature, you will know that God would never command something of you that was not good for you. 
Think about it this way. When your kids come to know that you love them unconditionally, your rules toward them become a blessing because they're built on their understanding of your love for them. If your kids don't think you love them and you give them rules, what are they going to think those rules are? You're trying to keep us from having fun, mom and dad, right? Their lack of understanding of your love has caused them to not trust your rules. So here's what the scripture is saying. When we don't know God rightly, we refuse to obey his commandments. But when we know God rightly, when we know his heart, at the end of the book he says that God is, God is what? God is love. At the end of the book it says perfect love casts out. And he says, but those who fear have not been perfected in, but those who do not fear have been perfected in In other words, those who do not fear, those who do not follow the Lord because they're afraid of him, but follow him because they love him, have come to understand and appreciate his love for them. We love him at the end of this book because he, there you go, because he first loved us. You see, the foundation of obeying God, the reason we can say that everyone who is saved will obey God's commands is because we know that everyone who is saved knows God, right? Everyone who is saved knows God rightly, knows God biblically. Romans 6, verse 1 and 2, it says, what shall we say then if we can... Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? You see, one of the problems in the Christian life and following the Lord, being obedient to him, is that we lack the knowledge of knowing what his heart is. If you know God's heart for you, that nothing that he does is going to bring you. The Bible says all things work together for good right? To those who love him, to those who call it according to his purpose. Authentic faith is the result of knowing him, okay? Remember that. Write that down. Authentic faith is the result of knowing him. Number two, knowing him results in loving him. Knowing God rightly causes us to love God, Knowing God rightly causes us to love him, right? That's what 1 John deals with. He talks about here, those who uh, know God have been perfected in his love. To know God rightly is to love God. To love God, to love God is to obey him. To love God is to follow in his footsteps. Listen to what he says He says, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God or the love for God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way just like he walked. Right? So knowing God results in loving God and loving God results in following him. The Bible says in Luke 6 and verse 40, disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. 
Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is, in, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and came in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, folks, what God does in our hearts, what God does in our lives is, number one is he opens up our eyes. The Bible says in John 17 and verse three that they might know him and I'm gonna just read it to you because I'll mess that one up. John, 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 I'm gonna turn there. I don't think I wrote, typed it up. John 17, turn it there with me if you would. Verse three. And this is life eternal, or this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what God does is God opens up our eyes by his grace. He helps us to see him clearly. He helps us to see him rightly. And if we see him rightly, the result is not to fear. The result is to fall in love with God through and in Jesus Christ. So we see him rightly. God opens up our eyes. We see him clearly. We fall in love with him. When we fall in love with him, our desire then is to obey him. John 14 and John 15, over and over again. If you love me, you will, you will keep my commandments. First John chapter number five, he says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and my commandments will not be burdensome to you. Why, how can commandments not be burdensome? Because they're based on our love for God. So what does God say here? If you're sitting here this morning and you don't know if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't know if he lives within you, you don't know if he indwells you, here's a test, here's a validation. For those of you who feel that God's love and God's a presence is in your heart and in your life and your desire is, is to follow him. Your desire is, is to pursue him because you love him. That's a good confirmation that he is your Lord and he is your savior. If you're sitting in our church today and your heart is, you've, grown, you've gone through life and you have kept all the rules and you've kept all the regulations and you've hated it in the process, listen to me, that is not salvation. Salvation is when you are enabled by the power of God to follow in his footsteps and to enjoy it because you love God because he loved you first. You see, folks, it's not about keeping the rules and regulations that makes us saved. What makes us saved is the grace of God. And when we get saved, our eyes are open to who God is. We fall in love with him, right? And then we desire to follow in his footsteps. If you've ever had somebody in your life that you 100% trusted that they would never do anything wrong for you, right? They could ask you to do anything and you would do it because you trusted them fully. You see, that's what God does in our hearts. So my plea to you this morning, if you're sitting here and you maybe are one of those people that's gone through the rituals, but you've never felt God's presence in your life, my prayer for you is that you would confess that to God. As being a sin. And you would ask him for mercy and grace and deliverance as, as only he can give. If you're here this morning and you've just been confirmed, I do love God. I, I do have a passion for him. 
And let this motivate your confidence in your salvation and also motivate your service for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for your word and thank you for loving us enough to send your only son into the world to die in our place and to create within us a new heart and a heart that um, sees things differently, that we can see you clearly, that we can see your word clearly and we can fall in love with you. And then as a result, we can follow in your footsteps. I pray that if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you personally as their Lord and their Savior, that you would even now be working in their heart, softening, renewing, changing by the power of your Holy Spirit. Bring forth new life as you will. In Christ's name, amen.